Hello, I'm reading from Genesis 42, 1 through 16. When Jacob heard that the grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we will die. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them, for fear that some harm might come to him. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that the brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him in their, face, their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he had had about them many years before. He said to them, You are spies. You have come to see how valuable our land has become. No, my lord, they exclaimed. Your servants have simply come to buy food. We are all brothers, members of the same family. We are honest men, sir. We are not spies. Yes, you are, Joseph insisted. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. Sir, they said, there are actually 12 of us. We, your servants, are all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. Our youngest brother is back there with our father right now, and one of our brothers is no longer with us. But Joseph insisted, as I said, you are spies. This is how I will test your story. I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you will never leave Egypt unless your youngest brother comes here. One of you must go and get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you here in prison. Then we will find out whether or not your story is true. By the life of Pharaoh, if it turns out that you do not have a younger brother, then I will know you are spies. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Christine. Well, in less than a month, Tina and I are going to be celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. That, I know exactly why you're applauding. You're applauding Tina for putting up with me for that long. I, I get it. Um, but a funny thing happened um, on our honeymoon. We went on a cruise. It's been the one and only time we went on, on the cruise. And I don't know if they're any better than this, but back in those days, you know, way back then, the walls between the cabins were paper thin. And... Um, we had the privilege of sleeping next to the loudest snoring human being I have ever heard in my life. And so a couple of nights in, I just couldn't take it anymore because I couldn't sleep. It was like reverberating through the walls. It was as if he was in our room. And I'm like, somehow I have to put an end to this so that I can go to sleep. So I devised this scheme while I was laying there in bed <clears throat> that um, I knew what the room number or what the phone number to his cabin would be. And so I got up, it's probably two or three in the morning now, and I, I quickly dial his number 
and I wait for it to ring, and, and I know that I can't slam it down because he'll probably hear that. And so as soon as I hear it ringing a couple times, and I actually hear him coming out of his deep sleep, and he stops snoring, I quickly hang up and jump back into bed. Revenge is sweet. Except that by now my heart was pounding, the adrenaline was rushing, and I couldn't fall back to sleep quickly enough, but he had no problem. And the snoring started again. Well, perhaps you heard the the story of the man who unfortunately uh, got bit by a dog and he went to the um, doctor and the doctor confirmed his greatest fear and said that he had rabies. And so he immediately got a book and a piece of paper out and he started writing down all sorts of names. And the doctor's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry. It's not contagious or anything like that. He says, no, I'm writing down a list of the people I'm going to go bite. Revenge is sweet. I read a story this week about a woman who was in a department store checking out, and as she opened her purse to get her wallet, the sales clerk noticed a TV remote in her purse. And so he thought, well, does she need batteries? And the woman said, oh, no, my husband wouldn't come shopping with me today. He's at home trying to watch two football games at once. And so I figured that taking the remote was, um, was at least the best thing that I could legally do to him. And so for some people, right, revenge is sweet. You see, when we've been wronged in any capacity, we may even be tempted to think, don't get mad, get even. Well, this summer we're studying the life of Joseph and we're repeatedly discovering that in whatever circumstance Joseph found himself in, he found himself, he was found to be faithful. And last week we looked at a a major turning point in Joseph's life. After interpreting Pharaoh's dreams for him, Joseph was promoted to second in command and was put in charge of all of Egypt. He was 17 years old when he was thrown into a pit by his brothers. He was 30 years old then when he was promoted. He had this plan and he worked his plan. And for seven years they had abundant harvests. And so he, he stored all of this excess grain in, in storehouses in the cities. And in chapter 41 and verse 49 is reported that he piled up huge amounts of grain like sand on the seashore. Finally he stopped keeping records because there was too much to measure. And now the famine that he predicted was upon Egypt and the whole world. But because of Joseph's plan, Egypt had plenty of food. But as the famine spread across the land, the people came to those storehouses in the cities and they received their distributions of the grain. And word spread around the world that there was grain in Egypt, so people came from all over the place to buy grain. And that sets the scene for what I'm going to say is a a foreseen drama this morning. Jesus is about, or sorry, Joseph is about to come to the rescue of the very brothers who rejected him. Over 20 years have passed from that fateful day, and now Joseph faces the ultimate test. His brothers come from Canaan to Egypt because they need food to survive. And who is in charge of the stockpiles of grain? Joseph. 
And so four scenes in our drama today. The first that we'll look at is just when Jacob sends his sons to Egypt, then the brothers going to Egypt, Joseph's response when he meets his brothers, and then the brothers' response uh, to the events that transpired um, in their life in those few days as well. So first, let's just look at Jacob sending his sons to Egypt. This is the first scene uh, with Jacob, the father, the patriarch of the family. Verse 1, when Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? That's a really good question, isn't it? There was an obvious need for food and they weren't showing any initiative. They're all just standing there and they're looking at each other, hoping that someone will do something. This is is actually now becoming a life and death situation. You'd think that they'd show a little more motivation, a little more initiative, but they don't do anything. And so Jacob gives them some clear directions. He says, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, go down to Egypt to buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. Perhaps it was the mere mention of Egypt that started to make the brothers feel a little uncomfortable. You remember the last time they saw their brother Joseph, he was tied up and heading towards Egypt. And perhaps now uh, their consciences are sort of being awakened a little bit. And so Jacob sends out his ten sons on a mission to Egypt to buy food. But he keeps his youngest son, Benjamin, at home. And verse 4 tells us why. He says, Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them for fear some harm might come to him. I always think about this. Why wouldn't he let Benjamin go? And it just seems that it's wrong for a couple of reasons. One, once again, we see Jacob, 20 years later, still not having learned that favoring one child over the others is not a good idea. Because he's favoring one of his sons. It's like he hasn't learned anything about parenting. And he continues now to show favoritism towards Benjamin. But it makes it even clearer. He says that, that, that his fear now, Jacob's fear, is in fact impacting his parenting. And have you ever discovered that, that fear has a way of handcuffing us? Over 20 years have passed and Jacob is still not taking any chances, fearing that he might lose another son. He hasn't forgotten the pain and the grief of losing Joseph. And he simply, after all of these years, can't fathom something happening to Benjamin. This makes me wonder sometimes, how long does it take me to learn important life lessons? How long does it take us to correct bad patterns of behavior? And do we allow fear to prevent us from doing what we know we need to do? This is, I know this is an issue of my life. The issue for me is not necessarily not knowing what to do. It's having then the courage to do it. It's easy to stand around and look at others and not making the initiative or not taking, or not making a decision or not taking any initiative. Do you see yourself at all in the behavior, perhaps, of Jacob or of his sons? Any special treatment for one child over the others? You know, that child that's a little easier going, a little bit more compliant? You know, that's the one that's easier for us to, to spend time with and be drawn towards. Or is fear keeping you from taking any action in your life that you know you ought to take? 
or you're not sure what to do, so you just don't do anything. You see, there's lots of us, lots for us to learn here. I don't want to camp there too long, but just realize that, that when we look at these narratives as these stories unfold, that these are real events that took place at a, at a, in, 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 in real life, in the people, lives of real people. And we can look at them and say, wow, like why did they respond that way? Why did they do that? Why were they thinking that? Why are they feeling that? And suddenly we see ourselves in the very characters that we're studying. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt. Secondly, the second scene is the brothers going to Egypt. So they do as Jacob told them to, and they're off to Egypt they go. Now you can already see where this is going, right? Verse 6, since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. If this was a movie right about now, you'd cue the dramatic music. You'd remember the coat, the dreams, the pit, the, the prison. Now Joseph's in charge. That's where he's been promoted. And they have to go to him, of all people, to ask for grain. And remember, the brothers would have had no idea where Joseph ended up, what he was doing, or whether he's even still alive. I mean, did he survive all of this? They would have had no clue. And when they arrived, it says the text, verse 6, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Do you remember where we started this series? Do you remember when we looked at Joseph's dreams? When he had said, someday you're going to come and you're going to bow before me? Well, right here, right now is the fulfillment of the dream that he had so many years earlier. Can you imagine this? The brothers are probably now in their 40s and 50s. Joseph immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Maybe we find that a little hard to believe. I mean, why would they not recognize him? I mean, lots of physical changes can take place over 20 years. If you think about it, Joseph, by this point, he had been totally assimilated into the Egyptian culture. Remember, he was given an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. He was dressed differently. He now had royal robes on. He would have, as an Egyptian, been clean-shaven as opposed to the, the long beards that the, the Hebrew men wore. By this time, he had learned the language and he was speaking Egyptian. He spoke to his brothers through an interpreter. I, I mean, even the brothers, I mean, they would have never put two and two together. They, they didn't even know if he was alive or if he was dead. And even if he was alive... The last place that they would have thought to find their brother was in the position of chief operating officer. And none of this was lost on Joseph. Because when his brothers bowed before him, it reminded him of his childhood dream. And he immediately realizes, they have no clue who I am. And so he takes and seizes this opportunity and uses it to his advantage. And he decides not immediately to reveal himself, right? He doesn't immediately come out and say, hey guys, listen, it's great to see you. It's me, your brother. You know, the one that you sold into slavery and then lied about to daddy. Hey, remember that dream I told you about? Look what you guys just did. Instead, the scripture says that he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? 
he demanded. And Joseph's questioning has a purpose. He needs information. He's, he's wondering if, in fact, his father is still alive. What about Benjamin, his brother? Did he perhaps suffer a similar fate? And so Joseph continues to push his brothers. He accuses them of spying. And to which they respond, No, my lord, they explain, Your servants have simply come to buy food. We are all brothers, members of the same family. And get this, We are honest men, sir. We are not spies. I wonder if Joseph cringed, maybe even just a little bit. Honest men? Really? (laughs) For sure. So again, Joseph insists that there are spies and he accuses them of only coming to see how vulnerable Egypt is so they could come in and basically steal all of their grain and take it back to their country. And then in verse 13, the brothers finally give Joseph what he's looking for. Sir, they said, There are actually 12 of us. We, your servants, how the tables have turned, we're all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. Your youngest brother, our youngest brother, excuse me, is back there with our father right now, and one of our brothers is no longer with us. I love the irony of that, right? Because they have absolutely no clue that they're talking to Mr. No Longer With Us. This is the first report of his family in over 20 years. Can we even imagine not knowing anything about our father or our brothers for 20 years? And Joseph keeps on them. Again, he continues to accuse them of being spies. He's just relentless. And I, I kind of was wondering, like, why, why was he pushing this spy theme so much? Could it be that he's giving them a taste of their own medicine? He's having a hard time right now. I mean, there's all this emotion. I'll talk about that in a moment. But, but he's just, like, maybe we just, he, he's just trying to prod them a little bit. Because they were the ones that initially accused him of being a spy, of coming and spying on them at work so that he could go back and tattletale on them to his dad. They were upset with him for bringing a bad report back to daddy. And I actually think Joseph, though, he's starting to appeal to their conscience and to their memory. He's, He's intentionally trying to get them to remember what they did to them, what they did to him. Friends, we have to try to imagine this a little bit because I I think we just can read over these words and we miss the, the emotional experience of what's taking place. I mean, I think this is like stomach churning stuff right here. Because can you imagine the flood of hurt and pain and memories when he saw his own brothers? Yes, he called his son Manasseh, remember? God made me forget. But now he remembers. It's real. And I'm sure he doesn't even know what to do at that time. And he's wondering to himself, well, should I tell him who I am? 
And so he does a really wise thing. He, he needs to buy some time. He needs to be able to gather himself, put himself together. And so he comes up with a plan to test their story. He wants, in fact, to see Benjamin for himself. And so he tells them that one of them, one of the, the ten brothers that have come now, has to go back to Canaan to go and get Benjamin, while the rest of them are going to wait for him to get back in prison. So he's needing some time, but I also think he wants some time for the brothers to think about what is going on. And so he puts them all in prison for three days. And after three days, he changes the plan. He decides, in fact, that only one of the brothers is going to stay in prison. The rest of the other, the other nine are going to go back. And he's going to send them back to Canaan with grain to feed their families. But he says they, they do need to come back with Benjamin if they ever want to see their brother again. You see, what's happening here is far more than just a dysfunctional family, <clears throat> you know, trading life-altering events. God's plan for the nation of Israel depended on the compassion of Joseph at this point. There was a lot at stake here. And the brothers, they start talking among themselves, not even, you know, realizing that while Joseph had learned a new language, he still could understand them. And they're talking and, 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 and wondering why this is happening to them. And and they conclude with this in verse 21. He's, they say to each other, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. They're realizing what they did. This is a confession of sorts. And, and the brothers start to rehash the events of, that, of the day that they abandoned Joseph right in front of him. And they have no idea that Joseph understands Hebrew. It's interesting, isn't it? Over 20 years later, and they are still thinking and talking about what they did to Joseph. You see, we're starting to get a picture of their hearts Earlier we saw how calloused their hearts were. Because if you remember when they did throw Joseph in the pit while they were trying to decide what they were going to do with him, they actually sat down for lunch. It was just like, you know, pass the ketchup, pass the salt. Let's have a, let's have a meal together. Who, who cares about our brother in the pit? We'll figure out what to do with him later. And now after all these years, what they really thought and experienced is starting to come out and they're finally being honest. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben said? But you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. You see, for 20 years, they thought that they got away with it. They lied to their father to cover up their dirty deeds. And now it's all just coming out in the open. Friends, there's so much going on here. 
But one thing I think we can safely say is this, that God is using this situation and how Joseph is handling it to bring the brothers back to their own disobedience and sin. And one of the first signs of an awakening conscience is the admission of personal guilt. And so it is with us. Sometimes the events in our lives only serve to trigger memories. And some of those memories are good and some of them are bad. And sometimes those memories surface sin and disobedience. And we go, oh yeah, I remember that. Was that ever dumb? Why did I do that? And when we remember, it should, like it did for Joseph's brothers, drive us to confession and to repentance. It's, it, you know, he talks about, you know, we're being punished. Now we have to answer for his blood. But it's not punishment in the way that we think about punishment. But when trouble comes, it may remind us of some past actions and attitudes. And friends, God can use the difficult events of our past to awaken our conscience. Guilt can be a good thing. And if that's the case, the right response then is to admit it, to acknowledge it, to confess it, and then to turn from it. And so that's what's taken place when the brothers go to Egypt. We move to scene three, where now Joseph is going to respond to all of what his brothers are saying and doing at this point. And I can only imagine how Joseph felt and how he might have wanted to respond. I mean, honestly, the flood of memories and the emotions associated with those memories, he might have been thinking revenge. I mean, this was his chance to get even, to settle some scores. He had the power to, 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 to execute these guys if he wanted to. To throw them in prison for a long time. To think about, you know, what they had done. Instead, we see these two responses. The first are tears. Verse 24, Now he turned away from them and began to weep. See, Joseph turned away so they couldn't actually see his eyes filling with tears. It's hard to know exactly why Joseph started to cry. At this point, it's just speculation, but... There is this reality that all of the pain and all of the hurts of the past just surfaced again through this face-to-face encounter. The emotion of it was just too much for Joseph. He couldn't handle it anymore. Yes, God had made him forget all his pain and trouble, but now the very presence of his brothers reminds him of all of those past wounds. And that hurt comes flooding back. Or perhaps they're actually tears of joy. Joy because even though their presence reminds him of what they did to him, he realizes, in fact, that he has already forgiven them. He realizes that in this moment, there isn't, in fact, the hurt and the anger that you would expect from being treated the way that he was. It was a long process of getting to that place. And maybe there are even tears of joy because he, in fact, realizes that what they did to him is still, in fact, heavy 
on their hearts. Twenty years later, the brothers still remember. They remember him pleading. They remember the anguish with which he pleaded. And Joseph wept like a baby because he discovered that his brothers hadn't forgotten about him after all. For 20 years they lived with unrepentant sin, hiding what they did, not talking about it, keeping it a secret. But now they're face to face with their past. And Joseph has a front row seat. I personally think he's just crying for all of these reasons. The emotion of it all, the the memory of the pain, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of seeing other people come to repentance. And there's this whole bundle of emotion, and it just spills out in tears. It's good to cry, you know. But there's another response, and it's grace. Verse 25, Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the men's sacks with grain, but he also gave secret instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. He also gave them supplies for their journey home. You see, Joseph did some practical and unexpected things for his brothers. When we might expect him to get even, instead, he gives them grain for their families. He gives them the money back that they had paid for them, unbeknownst to them. They discover it later. And then provides them with whatever supplies that they needed for their trip back home. So the grain, the returning of money, these supplies, they're all, they're all gifts of grace. Because the brothers didn't deserve any of it. And yet, got those gifts from Joseph. I mean, think about it. If, if this was a movie, we may have even in our own sin maybe wanted to cheer Joseph on in getting even. But it's not about revenge for Joseph. But it does beg the question, right? How would you and I respond if we met up 20 years later, with someone who had hurt and betrayed us. Yes, over those 20 years, we may have forgotten all about it. God has helped us get over the pain and the hurt of the betrayal. But now we're confronted with it again, in flesh and blood. How would we respond? And I would suggest to you that how we respond will say a lot about whether or not we have faced the ultimate test and have chosen forgiveness over revenge. Because that's how Joseph responded. With tears and compassion and with grace. The last scene, we see the brothers then responding to Joseph's generosity towards them. It's the closing scene of this unfolding drama. Pastor Quinn will pick it up next week. But Joseph responded with tears and with grace. And the brothers had loaded their donkeys. They're heading back to Canaan. And then when they stop for the first night, they find the money at the top of the grain sacks that Joseph had returned to them. And verse 28, Look, he exclaimed to his brothers, My money has been returned. It's here in my sack. 
Then their hearts sank. Trembling, they said to each other, what has God done to us? You see, there was this initial burst of joy. It's like, hey, we got our money back. But then they started to think about what that might mean. And their hearts sank. And they're immediately afraid. And they go back to thinking that God might, in fact, have something to do with this. And of course he does. Because he always does. You see, it sounds like they're beginning to sense that God has his hand in the strange events of the past few days. They know in their heart, they know in their mind that they did not deserve what they got. They deserve to be thrown in prison for what they did to Joseph. But now they realize they've been given free grain. They've been the recipients of grace shown to them. And not only did they wake up to their own sin, they started to then realize that God was in fact at work. And so the question, what has God done, is a good question. And when we look at the whole life of Joseph to this point, we know that he has protected Joseph all along the way. He promoted him to second in command. He provided these seven years of abundance. Then he sent a famine. If there was no famine, the brothers would never have come to Egypt because they came to Egypt because it was the only place in the world that had food. Can I ask you this morning, what has God done in your life? Or what is God doing in your life? How has he used the situation and events of your life, even the most difficult ones, the hurtful ones, the painful ones, to mold and to form and to shape you? What about that person who has hurt you and betrayed you? What if you were the one who has hurt someone else? And a message like this is just conjuring up some of those memories. And I believe that God is stirring something in us when that happens, and we need to pay attention to it. Why is this memory coming back? Why is this event in the forefront of my mind? So just in closing, some quick takeaways. Apart from some of the applications I've already shared throughout this message, how long do we practice bad behavior before we we correct it? Does fear prevent us from actually acting and doing what we know we need to do? What do we do with guilt? Um, How do we respond to it? How do we respond to those who have hurt us? and, and, And how do we respond when grace is extended to us? Those are all important things for us to think about. But I see at least three more big themes develop in these, in these uh, verses that I just want to raise to give us something to think about and something to take home. And the first of this is the theme of restoration. I think it's safe to assume that restoration matters to God. And sometimes it might take 20 years. God isn't okay with just leaving the past in the past. I believe God's heart is for reconciliation and restoration. And often there's nothing that we can do practically. And it's so frustrating, right? Until God works in the heart of the person who has hurt you. Romans 12, 8 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes you do all that you can and there still is no peace. 
But you and I can only be responsible for our part. You've probably already discovered that some people can't acknowledge how they have hurt you. You can't make them accept their part. Joseph went on with his life. And he chose faithfulness to God over dwelling in bitterness and anger. I mean, did he feel some of that initially? I'm sure he did. But he avoided getting stuck there. Did he experience pain at the hands of his brothers? Absolutely. And as you probably, some of you would know this, family pain is some of the deepest pain. But often all we can do is pray and invite God to work in our life and in the life of the person that we're unreconciled with. And in time, God may allow a series of events that provide opportunity to relive the betrayal and to bring it out in the open. And that's what he did for Joseph and his brothers. And make no mistake, this is a long and difficult process. We're just seeing the beginning of it here in chapter 42, and it continues for three more chapters in Genesis, and it takes over a year. But we're going to see some amazing trust rebuilt. We're going to see these relationships restored. We're going to see how the brothers again respond in fear of what what Joseph might do to them because they know what they deserve. And he again responds in grace to them. But God is about restoration. We see that here. Secondly, the message of repentance also comes through. Because perhaps this morning you're living with some of the realization of some of the hurts that you have caused others. And when you first hurt that person, betrayed that friend, sinned by behaving in an inappropriate way, you felt some initial guilt, but you chose to ignore it. And the longer you pursued it and the more you shoved it down, the further it got away, but you realize it never really goes away. And often we experience life situations that then take us back to the events that we've tried to hide. And sometimes it's a message like this, and God uses it just to awaken our conscience. Friends, if that's the case for you today, know that there's a huge difference between remorse and repentance. One is just feeling sorry that you did what you did, but there's no action. You see, the other repentance is to admit our sin and repent of it. That means we turn from it. We stop making excuses and blaming others. We accept our responsibility. We confess our sin. We own our part. And that's Joseph's brothers and what they were experiencing. And lastly, there's the theme of forgiveness. Friends, forgiveness is always a better response than revenge. Joseph had long forgiven his brothers. Even though he named his son, God made made me forget, he remembered. You never really outlive the memory of ten brothers conspiring to kill you, but instead choose to throw you in a pit and then sell you to slave traders. But because he forgave, God made him forget the pain and trouble of those life-altering events. God will move us forward by healing our past. And there is absolutely no healing when all we are thinking about is revenge. And in no way am I suggesting that this was easy for Joseph or for any of us. Because of the way he initially treated them, he spoke harshly to his brothers, he accuses them of spying. says to me that Joseph was maybe even a little bit human. 
But he also knew that it wasn't his place to avenge a wrong. He realized that that was God's part. And what we're called to do is to extend grace and forgiveness and then to receive that grace and forgiveness as well. You see, forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not an emotion. So we may not feel like it, but we can do it. And friends, this is what God extends to each of us. Grace and forgiveness. The forgiveness of Jesus not only takes away our sins, it's as if they had never been. And this morning we gather around a table that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. That he has extended grace and forgiveness to us. And our response is to receive that forgiveness, but also to acknowledge the sin in our lives and to ask him for his forgiveness for those things. And so I pray that as we now move to a time of communion, that that's exactly what we would do, that we would just process some of the things that we heard this morning. We'd think about restoration. We'd think about repentance. And we would think about forgiveness. And so I'm going to invite Pastor Quinn, who's going to come lead uh, our time of communion this morning, to come. And also, um, those that are serving, you can come. The worship team, you can come. And we're going to just transition from this time of teaching to the time around the table. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna read this encouragement to uh, to challenge us, and again to encourage us as we enter into this time of communion. Uh, so I invite you just to close your eyes and uh, and to hear these words. Please come to the sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are righteous, but that you are sincerely loved by our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit.